0: Before we start today's episode, I want to ask you to take some time to fill out the Decoder audience survey. We want to hear what you think of the show, our guests, and any other feedback you'd like to share. It'll only take a few minutes, and you'll be helping to inform future episodes of Decoder to make it even better. You can find the survey in the show notes or at Verge.com slash survey. Support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux. So how can you keep
1: up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource its actually data. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. Today, I want to talk about esports, or professional video games, if you prefer. For a long time, people have predicted that playing video games competitively would become a big business, rivaling traditional sports leagues like the NBA or the NFL but it has been a long process with challenges and setbacks along the way. There's an audience, lots of people tune in to watch teams play games like League of Legends or Dota 2, but the business models and ecosystem around the industry are still in progress. There has not been a ton of success, but there's something there. So I wanted to talk to Nicole LaPointe Jameson, the CEO of an esports team called Evil Geniuses, to figure out how an esports team makes money, where the industry is headed, and where she sees growth. Now, Evil Geniuses is one of the oldest esports organizations around. It's 21 years old, and it had its early success with teams playing Halo. Remember Halo? It's not around anymore. Nicole became CEO of Evil Geniuses in 2019 when the team was at its lowest point, having abandoned some of the largest esports leagues and struggling to grow. Since then, she's expanded the company from eight people to over 150 staffers with offices in Seattle and Los Angeles, four professional teams, a content operation, a growing business in educational tech, and white labeling the products they've developed to run the company. Nicole also has a particular focus on diversifying gaming. She's a young black woman running a company in games, which is sadly not a very common story but she sees positivity in inclusion because it can lead to winning. She told me if you're more inclusive of more people, more people will walk through the door and some of those people will be more talented than the roster you have, and that leads to winning more tournaments. Now, some notes before we start. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about how to make money in eSports, and there are a few basic structures to know. Some leagues, like League of Legends Championship Series, are run by the game publisher, So Riot, which publishes League of Legends, limits the number of teams in the league and charges a fee for a franchise slot in that league. Those slots, one of which Evil Geniuses just bought, can cost tens of millions of dollars. In turn, if the league does well and makes money, there's a revenue share with those slot owners. Other leagues are more open. They simply have qualifying tournaments that anyone can join, and it's up to the teams themselves to make money on their own. Hopefully by winning, which can come with some prize money. In both structures, the larger teams need to figure out a way to make money in other ways. Some have leaned heavily into merch. Some have leaned into personalities and streaming on services like Twitch. Others have leaned into brand partnerships. And all of them are constantly on the hunt for new ways to make money. It is a wild time in this industry. One last note. Keep in mind throughout this entire conversation that Nicole LaPointe-Jameson, CEO of Evil Geniuses, is just 26 years old. I promise you, I was not this put together at 26. I don't think many people are. It's something else. All right, here we go. Nicole LaPointe Jameson, you're the CEO of Evil Geniuses. Welcome to Decoder.
1: Thank you for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So what is Evil Geniuses?
1: Evil Geniuses is one of North America's oldest eSports organization. We are an eSports team. Well, we have a bunch of teams across League of Legends, Counter-Strike, Fighting Games, Valorant, Dota 2, and some streamers and influencers. We all compete under one banner. And we are... we. We lean into the evil genius side of our brand identity. We like being punchy, bold, and authentic voices and create a lot of content and programs beyond just our athletics, like collegiate and education programs, data and analytics programs, and spicy, engaging content to (laughs) excite and inspire our people.
0: So you are the CEO of an esports company. You're a new CEO, right? You've only been there a couple of years. Before that, you worked at, Peak Six, which is an investment company. Explain how you became the CEO of Evil Geniuses. Give me, give me a, a sense of that journey.
1: It's a fair question to ask because it's a little nonlinear. I had worked for the past five years at an investment firm called Peak Six Investments, which does a lot of, I call it a bit, mixture of private equity meets family office, and that they have an investment portfolio that's low touch, but then they have a full-on operational acquisition investment portfolio as well. And I lived in that side of the house looking at a variety of businesses for them, ranging from the dating industry to flood insurance to haptic technology. And at the time that EG and gaming came on our plate, I was looking from an investment point of view at technology AR, VR and gaming companies looked at a lot of esports teams. I don't think it's a badly kept secret that a lot of them don't look great on paper from an investment point of view. And EG was a diamond in the rough. So I had focused in particular with distressed asset businesses that were ripe for technology disruption for turnaround. And EG was this tiny 10 person company in Seattle, Washington that had a 21 year legacy brand of competing excellently in all different titles. So, from a private equity distressed asset turnaround point of view, it was very exciting because here's a very open sandbox that had built and preserved the best elements of what you look for in a business: strong IP, fan affinity, and all of the marketing was all set to go. Needed help with business acumen and financial growth. Um, so, I was very excited for a board seat. Jokes on me! Um, was told about two weeks before the acquisition clo- or the investment closed, converting to more of an acquisition. I should be rolling in to help kind of spearhead the business and really figure out the space of esports as it had not been well figured out, especially when I had entered two years ago. And so here I am still here, stuck, I think. Um, (laughs) But it's been fantastic because, you know, coming from, I hate to use like the business realm, but entering into esports, which is very much an entertainment and passion platform in terms of the overall industry when we had entered was a really good melding of worlds. And i had always loved Gaming. Um, I've always been a personal fan of the space. So if you had told my ten-year-old self, "Hey, you're going to work in gaming later," I like, wouldn't have believed you. But very, very happy to have landed where I did.
0: You know, we mostly hear the negative side of PE firms and what they do to distress companies, right? It doesn't seem like the the game here is we're going to break this thing into parts, extract value over leverage it. Like there's a negative PE story, private equity story that we hear all the time.
1: That is fair. Not this one.
0: This is very much an (laughs) investment story. And you were installed as the CEO to grow the brand. What was the current business of Evil Geniuses in esports? And what do you think that business should look like?
1: Yeah. So bear with me if you're an esports expert, but taking a step back, the esports industry is a bit of a misnomer in that it really encompasses two bimodal Often intersecting, but frequently not, business models. One of them is traditional sports, like, except, think of us like a university athletics department. I am University of Michigan, but instead of basketball, football, soccer under one brand, I have Dota, League of Legends, and Counter-Strike. And there's that business model, which has the same models you would see in traditional sports, sponsorship, IP and media rights, direct advertising, etc. But esports, being a digital platform, also bridges entertainment, so you think of content creators, digital influencers, and all of those revenue models and revenue streams, that also exists in esports. So we're a bit of a blended of form of both of those. When I had entered EG, we were just the former. We were just the athletics model, which is great. That's the thesis we believe in. It's why we're here to be competitive. But it wasn't profitable. It, you can't operate player salaries that look akin to pro-athlete salaries are not sustained on esports level sponsorships today. So we really focused on bringing peripheral revenue streams into the business to support what we do, but that also don't deprecate from the core product of who we are and how that's manifested is, of course, the entertainment side of house. But we've also developed deep collegiate and education platforms, how to bridge the world of gaming, how to make gaming accessible to different audiences as well as data, analytics, and even fantasy embedding products. So we've been able to pull in things using our core athletics platforms to really help self-sustain the business in the past two years to keep the eSports product alive, but keep the lights on at the same time.
0: (laughs) One of the questions I have for kind of all these digital models, digital media or digital entertainment models, and obviously I work in digital media, so I think about this a lot. (laughs) But one of the questions that always comes up is, It seems like so rarely is the core product itself the money, right? It's the universe of things around it that hopefully add up to enough money to keep the core product alive. That is very different, you know, than a traditional sports league, right? Like owning the Lakers is just a, it is just a lucrative proposition because the Lakers play basketball and people buy tickets and you'll sell the rights to the game. Like you'll just do it that way Here. Uh, and almost everywhere in digital, it seems like the core thing rarely makes the money itself. It is almost a loss leader. Does that is that how you think of your model? I, I wish I had
1: a better and more shiny answer for you, but it, it definitely resonates. You know, we believe in the team. The team is the crown jewel. Like we wouldn't have a value proposition to exist without the athletic side but it's not supported by the magnitude of the revenue with league revenue share like you'd find in traditional sports today. I, I, do, I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that won't change over time, but today I would be a bad fiduciary to my investors if mm-hmm. I said, yeah, let's just go athletics, that will work, because it won't, unfortunately. But also on the bright side, right, it's unlike traditional sports, the beauty of esports, you saw it during COVID, Pro Sports League stopped. Entertainment in the sports space stopped. They weren't sure what to do. And we could keep going. We have a very sticky product by being digital and by being more flexible in how we engage, excite, and monetize the fan and consumer. And that's something that, while it's it's the playbook isn't well-established ubiquitously across all of the esports universe, people are fleshing it out and figuring it out and finding interesting sticky trends here. So it's very much an industry in formation still.
0: How do you think about your relationship to the the game publishers? I was reading uh, an essay by a a VC named Matthew Ball, and he has this line in there, which I I think is very funny. I don't know if it's true. I just think it's very funny that right now the relationship between esports teams and the publishers is like if Spalding the company that makes baseballs owned the leagues and eventually Spalding would just announce, well, now every game requires three baseballs in play at the same time, right? Like there's an obvious drive for them to make money in that way. They control the games. They can change the rules. They can change how the games work. That seems like a a relationship that needs to be managed very closely. How do you, how do you think about building a business with a power imbalance of that scale?
1: Oh, it's uh that is probably the biggest either plus to the space or thorn in my side, depending on the day and which developer. I, we The relationship vary from we are deep in the weeds of how does competitive structure look like and we collaborate very tactically together to me getting kicked out of boardrooms being called a rent seeker. like They wow. are far and few in between with relations because you're right. They hold a lot of power. And here's some good examples. right? EG used to be the best team in the world for Halo. Halo is not a game that is supported anymore competitively. <laughs> so, unlike basketball, which won't go away, esports titles can go away, and so that's why most people don't really get. They're like, okay, a twenty-one-year-old brand. Why is that interesting? Well, that means whoever in all my precedenters were able to navigate a very IP and tech platform-changing ecosystem for twenty-one years of its our existence. That's a hard skill. And knowing, especially because entering an esports title is not cheap, both from labor, from straight dollars, from infrastructure, knowing what titles are sticky, what developers have good relations. It's almost a due diligence process in itself to know what developers are supporting the league in a way that helps brands grow. I think a very interesting today case study is Fortnite, right? Everyone and their mother knows about Fortnite. But why are esports teams pulling away from Fortnite is epic changes the competitive platform so frequently, it's hard for us to be proactive. And those feedback loops are important because at some point, if developers really care about the team side in the eSports ecosystem, they have to be more collaborative. But again, similar to the whole space, it's developing, it's far and few in between. And it's a huge component of what t- eSports teams make it or break it in the space is how they navigate the developers.
0: We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, I want to dive into something I ask every CEO about, which is decision-making frameworks. There are a lot of different kinds of decisions to be made in esports. It's many different kinds of business at once. So this is an interesting one. Stay tuned. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try. Explore connect pivot transform see what happened there as soon as connect entered the story innovation became achievable that's why deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people ideas and technologies to overcome solve and of course transform connect to what matters for innovation start at deloitte.com/us/innovate
1: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. All
0: right, we're back. I ask every CEO who comes on the show for their decision-making framework, and I've kind of waited a bit to ask you because I, I wanted to give people a sense of how novel the decisions you make are. There are parts of the decisions you make that seem very much related to what any entertainment or sports CEO would make. There are parts that feel like a, what a tech CEO would have to do, and there are parts that are just like totally new. So given all that, what is your decision-making framework, and how has it evolved over the two years you've been in Evil Geniuses?
1: For better or for worse, as my, anyone in my team would tell you, I don't come from a gaming background. I don't even come from an entertainment or sports background. I came from finance and before that, data science. And so most of my decisions, as cliche as it probably could sound, are very, very data driven. I can't leave the private equity realm mentally. I'm always thinking of downside risk and managing upside potential. And that translates, especially in a world where a lot of what we do is unknown. I'm almost ashamed of a lot of the things we've had to do that were firsts in the industry. We were one of the first esports teams to have an HR department. We were one of the first esports teams to help build kids camps and summer programs, things that would make you laugh in this day and age generally are still very fundamental. And so that comes from a a data decision framework around risk reward potential, level of effort and cost, almost like an engineering arm um, to ensure that there's the why behind decisions. So when we have to, as we do have to pivot, change our course, throw something out and go in the complete opposite direction, we, we have a diligent framework of why we did what we did. So we know how to course correct when that has to happen 19
0: times a day. What are the primary metrics you look at for decisions?
1: Depending on where we are, well, the first, first is probably financial. We're, we're a startup and every dollar counts. Every dollar relates to how we continue to survive. And especially in COVID, where while our product became extremely popular, costs also rose. And a lot of where we got our money, direct sponsorship allocations, those that infrastructure fell away. There were not a lot of people spending on marketing and advertising in a COVID world. And so cost is the first big framework we look at. We also care a lot about the voice of our fans and our community because we are, again, an entertainment product. So things that we do that will authentically resonate with whoever we're trying to target is critically important. So we think of the fans and the community quite a bit. But then also we're, we're a sports team. And so our humans, our players, our athletes, are also the crux of our decision. So depending on the decision, do we bring in a certain partner? Will our fans like it? Will our players authentically engage with the product? Those are the types of decisions we make beyond what is the money. And that means we, we say no to things. It means we say yes to strange things. And hopefully those are the good decisions to set us up for the longer term. But as we call it internally, there's a little bit of a matrix decision, right, of all the constituents we have to think of, because there's quite a lot of frequently opposing voices. We've made decisions that we knew, well, this might not resonate with the fans, but we know we have to do this, so how do we navigate this situation? My shareholders will think I'm crazy because this hasn't been done before and it's a little avant-garde, but this is the decision we have to make here. And so it's not easy, but it's exciting.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Give me an example of a decision that displeased one of your stakeholders that you had to navigate through.
1: We've pushed in some interesting directions and some of the directions where I call it the path of more resistance for longer-term rewards. And I'm actually very blessed that I have investors that very much are aligned with the longer-term vision, even when short-term cash is problematic. However, like there are times where we've made big bets on teams, like actually entering into a title and doing things a different way. A A really good tactical example where I had to really get people on board is we... Let me take a step back. When building a roster in esports, there's a lot of data you look at. We recently entered a new title called Valorant, and we built a roster exactly opposite of how every other esports team ever in the world has built a roster. They usually say, okay, take a coach who's been in the space for a long time, ask the coach, who do they know that's good, and build from there. We said, screw that. Let's look at our data. Let's pull API data of best ranked players in the world. Let's sift through empirically, look at key metrics that we know align in game and build a roster from there. And so we took a very empirical building approach, which maybe doesn't sound insightful for sports listeners, but is very different from esports where most of the talent pool is known, especially in North America. We doubled down when we actually found out from an empirically built roster, that roster also included both women and men. So we started one of the first mixed gender rosters in a competitive esports scene in the world and that shook a lot of rattled a lot of cages and surprised a lot of people because it wasn't wasn't a marketing play right? it wasn't all like this team to do this function for this marketing purpose it was very much kind of threw all the books out the window and said this is the best team we think that can compete based on our methodology and here's what here's what they look like and here's who they are and, and let's support them and that exercise I was. I'm grateful that I had team members and investors and partners that got on board and supported it. But it was very iconoclastic to what had been done and really pushed the envelope on a, a lot of different fronts.
0: I'm all about the the methodology underneath it. That sounds very interesting. Video games are video games. Like the the idea that there were single gender teams to begin with has always yeah. struck me as very odd.
1: Oh, this is a pain point.
0: And that is, <laughs> and that's part of the culture of gaming. There's a whole. Yes. There's just a whole culture to unpack there. But you, know, you came in as kind of an outsider. You had fresh perspective. Why do you think that that was such that creating a team empirically that ended up mixed gender was shocking to people?
1: It's rough. I think there are three big reasons why esports can be a little backwards, considering how much of an advantage they should have by how the games actually are played and competed on, which are generally more accessible, right, for gender, for whoever. The first is esports was so like five years ago, if you were an esports athlete, you lived in someone's house with all your other teammates and you played for 12 hours a day with not much infrastructure oversight or sometimes not even for pay to make it big. And that by design, the infrastructure of underfunded esports where you don't have salary, you don't have benefits Parents with kids are not going to do that job, right? It, it, women aren't going to live with men in a house forever and not going to do that job. People with committed relationships are probably not going to do that job. People with disabilities are probably not going to do that job. Like The job wasn't accessible because the infrastructure wasn't there to support it. And so we've actually spent a lot of energy making sure we did a lot of provisions. Like all of our athletes are full-time employees with health benefits and 401k match, which again, hopefully doesn't sound insightful to people on the call, but was a first- for many people in the esports industry, to make sure we could bring in the best of whatever talent and break down those barriers to reasonable things that should be accommodated. The second is, of course, the culture. Like, I won't shy away. Uh, The fact that me coming in as CEO was so big due to just my identity is disappointing. It's 2021, to be honest, but not surprising, especially if you look at the North American esports player, right? The biggest problem we face is breaking down the perception of gamers are alt-right dudes in a basement. It's not. Most people play games, and if you include mobile gaming, more people play games than not. But that education, the accessibility, the optics of people like not that example is not well articulated. And so that also breeds a negative culture. People come in and say, well, like attracts like. And so we've pushed a lot there to ensure we bring in many different people from many different backgrounds to support and bring true optics of who is a gamer and who's in the gaming space. And then of course you took that teams historically, it's a compoundment of the funding and the infrastructure and the culture. If you had teams that were run by previous players, they don't, they don't know better. They don't come from out of space, out of the space and go, Oh, you know what? Google runs things this way. Let's take these components and put this in our playbook and try this. And Oh, look, Tableau's doing this. Let's try this. It, it It's very, um, it's a self-perpetual feedback loop of how things should be, not how should things ought to be. Oh, that wasn't a sentence, but you get what I'm going for here.
0: How things are, not things how things ought to be.
1: Yep, there we right? go. <laughs> and so it just it was stuck without dis, without forceful disruption. So um, I was glad to be one of the catalysts of forceful disruption <laughs> in the space.
0: Well, so let me ask you. You know, you brought up this this notion that if you can mobile games, everybody plays games. Th- that's true, um, but your teams don't play games, right, as a whole. Like, you don't have competitive Candy Crush teams, or maybe you do in the lab, <laughs> I don't know, but you have, com- you have a competitive Valorant team. You have a competitive League of Legends team. It costs you a lot of money to get that slot in League of Legends, right? Millions of dollars to buy that slot. That, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's a big investment against an audience that is potentially fixed against people who are interested in League of Legends. So how do you grow from – I mean, I've I've watched a League of Legends match, and I've played this game five times, and I have just no idea what's going on. Right? Like, that's okay. But that's – it's not accessible in the way that – watch it – like, I know a lot of people who don't watch football, but they watch the Super Bowl.
1: Right, because that's an event. It's right. a spectacle. And that's a lot of – and actually going back to the developers question, that's where – that's actually one of the metrics we look at when we evaluate developers to work with is – who makes their broadcast their education and their social materials accessible to a broader audience because increasing viewership it isn't a one to one relationship between game sales and esports viewers and even esports viewers by titles are not the same our league of legends viewers are nothing like our counter strike viewers both in geography income level age gender split etc and so finding both broadcast partners, content creators, and how we position ourselves to different audiences as a brand and make the language, the education, the um, however we present ourselves accessible is is really important because some some developers don't care as much. It's uh, for the people, of the people, very insular. Some developers are really pushing to make sure the game is broader. And I think even if you take First-person shooters versus more like magic-based or MOBA games, right? Especially in North America, developers that focus on games with guns and terrorists versus counter-terrorists have a bigger lift to make sure the game seems approachable, accessible, and honestly, kid-friendly to keep bringing in viewers and perpetuate the title. It's a hard challenge. I don't think anyone's done it perfectly yet. I think there's a lot of room to grow. Traditional sports are definitely ahead of esports here, but people are getting smarter as there is a big rift, right? The average viewer is 16 to 30, but the average capital allocator or the average CEO or a director at these companies that are running this are over 50.
0: You said professional sports have a leg up, which is an amazing way to think about the NBA. It's just like a a scrappy startup with a leg up. But one of the things that's true about pro sports, the NBA, baseball, and the NFL, they tune their product to make it easy to watch Mm -hmm. because the market for playing football is actually very small. Like very, very few people will ever play football. Maybe more people will play basketball, but still the market for like being a professional basketball player is still pretty small. The market for playing Fortnite is huge. Yep. Potentially many times bigger than the market of people who will watch League of Legends. So that there's like an inherent dynamic between the people who make the games and a company like yours where you're trying to make something that's great and fun to watch as an entertainment product, and they're trying to make something that's easier to participate in. Mm-hmm. Do you think that tension's unresolvable? Because sometimes I, when you say Fortnite is constantly changing the game, they're doing it to make it more interesting to play, not more interesting to watch other people play.
1: Right. Sometimes. I know it's a bad, bad answer, but some developers run their own leaks. And then I think you see those tensions pretty clearly. I don't need to call them out. But some developers no call them out. <laughs> CEO,
0: call them out.
1: Some developers have let third parties run their leagues, and two good examples on ESL and Blast are two league partners, and they are focused on making a top-of-line broadcast and accessible product. And so, depending on how much again the developers give leeway to for people to use their IP of the game to create an e- ecosystem that really supports. Like, high tides raise all ships here. It it seems clear to me, seems less clear to others, maybe. But um, it's something where the right constituents are focused on the right aspects of the job because it is a very large task to make. Like, making games, being a a game developer, is a huge struggle. Very expensive. Crazy amount of labor. Very hard to keep up. Esports is interesting in that it brings great visibility, gives good player conversion, boosts product reputation... But for some of these, like, for example, Riot or um, Valve, eSports, even though it's multi-hundreds of millions of dollars for them, is still tiny compared to the game sales. Like, it's not really the huge (laughs) focus. So, outsourcing to people whose focus that is, is is excellent. And so, it is something we definitely have to evaluate a lot around what teams do we enter. You mentioned franchising. Like, one thing we love about Riot and them franchising League of Legends is even though you might look at that price tag of a, a franchise medallion and go, holy crap, who would spend that money on this? What it shows is though, A, we have a voice at the table on how the league is constructed and supported, but also it, it's a true legal and financial stickiness in support to make the product viable, right? It's a little bit of a assured, we're all going to work for the same end goal, which unfranchised leagues don't really have to. They have no one to report into. They don't have a, a board of owners per se who have invested into the product. So each developer is trying is assessing this and navigating in their in their own way per se, but it definitely is not something to be under under um, underlooked.
0: So I, I read a report somewhere that for Evil Geniuses to to buy into a League of Legends franchise costs almost thirty million dollars. Is that true? It's directionally correct. Dire- <laughs> you are a very good CEO. <laughs> so okay, so that's it's a big number. You're deciding to make that investment. Do you think you're going to get? A 10x return on that investment just from playing the game? Or is it the ancillary universe of content creation, making celebrities? Maybe you're going to sell a Netflix show. Is that the money?
1: In the next five years, it's a mix between the league revenue share. So we get a cut of the work that Riot does, which is excellent, as well as exactly what you said, the ancillary, our direct sponsorships, our player appearances, giveaways, our our third party programs that we run that support the core or are supported by the core of our product, which is the team. Prize pool is not a driver for revenue. I think that's the biggest misnomer in esports space. People love floating. One of our other teams competes for a upwards of $40 million prize pool for a singular event called the International Every Year in Dota. People are like, wow, esports teams must be so rich with that prize pool. And mostly goes to players or back to the to the league. So franchising is interesting to us because it gives a a revenue share. We get um, part of broadcast rights and revenue, part of league sponsorship rights and revenue, as well as then we can sell our own direct sponsorships against it, too.
0: So this kind of that's here's the next big difference with a traditional sports team. You own the Lakers. You would be great. We're all everybody (laughs) put yourself in that headspace. Okay, so you own the Lakers. You make a lot of money owning the Lakers. Maybe you you sell concessions, you sell tickets, you have all these ancillary things around the Lakers. Then you have LeBron James, who is a brand unto himself, who makes his own endorsement deals, who runs his own businesses, and his celebrity is monetized independently of the Lakers. Can your players monetize their celebrity independently of you? Because that, when I've talked to other esports CEOs... Lee Trinket, FaZe Clan, what have you, they're very directly monetizing that celebrity themselves yeah. as their business.
1: Word entered. See, this is where the entertainment comes back in. Okay. We own those rights. We sell those rights. We manage those rights. So our players are celebrities in their own rights and realms, and that helps the team. They, of course, get a cut of that, but that's the onus is on us to manage and support and sell against and brand build for them, essentially, and... That's another reason why the model is a bit more sustainable, because it gives us additional maneuverability around how do we activate with partners? What types of um, activations do we do? What type of sponsorships can we sell? And all the different spaces we can sell, for example, might have an esports athlete. But then if they're very much into fitness or fashion, you can bridge other areas of similar culture more naturally than if they were off on their own or just through gaming.
0: So those are your deals, not their deals. Correct. And so um, I'm just assuming they're full-time employees. They Mm -hmm. have 401K and health benefits. Inside of those contracts, you're saying we're going to own a percentage of all the deals Mm -hmm. that happen around you.
1: Because we often broker and source them ourselves, too.
0: So if they – again, not to harp on FaZe Clan.
1: That's okay.
0: But when Lee was on the Verchess, I harped on it, (laughs) so it's fine. Um, But, like, when he he was on – when I interviewed him for another show – Right, he had just had a player who had gone out and made his own deals, and they wanted a cut, and that was a very, that was a contentious issue, mm. right? That even if you'd gone and broken brokered your own deals, that company would get a cut. Is that an issue that you've had to deal with with your talent? We
1: haven't. We're Face Clan's probably a good example because in the bimodal spectrum of how to esports team operate, they're full entertainment. They don't okay. They're they do not really follow the athletics model. Yeah. Well. Um,
0: so <laughs> You're being very... You can't see, Nicole. She's being very careful. <laughs> I'm watching the thoughts form in her brain before she says them. They're
1: so good at entertainment. They haven't <laughs> nailed the sports side, though. <laughs> oh, man. Lee's lawyers are going to call me up tomorrow. Um, so we, our employment agreements are a little different. Also, by EG being a product and a subsidiary of a large financial services private equity company, our employment agreements, our legal structure is a, it, we've probably fall on the far end of the spectrum of really buttoned up, really proper legal risk
0: avoidant. When you think about the celebrities that you're minting in your leagues, are they is the total opportunity? You're going to be the most famous League of Legends player? Or is it you're just going to be a celebrity athlete?
1: I think that varies by the, the player. Right. The mm-hmm. good news is, you know, I have 41 player athletes it's a manageable number to really know each as a human and so they there's quite a bit of variation in their interests and their passions some of our athletes are like i don't want any deals don't put me on sponsorship i just want to play and if they're good enough great put put your money where your mouth is and that's fine some of them are like i really love this game i love making content in the fitness space we can support that some are like hey you know i used to be a pro i actually i can give an example um we have this one player ricky ortiz She used to be one of the best Street Fighter players in the world. And now she's a content creator and she's super into Vogue and fashion. And so we got her in Japanese Vogue. We got her working with anime partnerships. We got her in an absolute global marketing campaign for inclusivity in the LGBTQ space. We can navigate much more by the individual because it's not an overwhelmingly large vehicle for us to to really manipulate and support. And it's a very hands-on tactile just by, I think, the industry maturity, it's a bit more junior, where every person really has a voice and matter. Still in esports, it's not as infrastructure, it's as layered as all the agents and managers and the posse that you find <laughs> in many traditional sports.
0: Well, so this is something I think about a lot, especially in the creator ecosystem, which we, we pay a lot of attention to. It's new, but the cultural product it's making is not maybe not new, right? It's people making videos. At the end of the day, it's, it's still just people making videos, then... They get monetized directly or through advertising or some way. And so the infrastructure of Hollywood has sort of raced towards the creator economy. And so you do have lots of law firms now and agencies and marketing people. And the creator economy is kind of big enough to support all of that. Is the esports economy big enough to support all of those additional bits of infrastructure yet? Or is that just growing slowly alongside?
1: You know, what's interesting to me is that economy exists – but it's very much, I'm not sure if it just is not the education bridge of like, hey, this ecosystem system is, a, or is this system is available, was made aware or not. But it's not, it's not bullshit. You know, for our players, only 30% are represented by agents and by agencies that are the real ones, you know, UTA, CAA, large conglomerates. But then there's a lot of like, oh, my uncle's an agent. <laughs> there's a lot of...
0: To be fair, there's a lot of that in regular sports too.
1: Okay. That makes me feel better. I don't, maybe not actually. I I can personally say, even as a team owner, more broad facing incumbent providers in the agency, the sports infrastructure, even like sports science and wellness, please enter the space because we, that helps us grow at a mature and sustainable level. Right now it's a little bit, there's still some wild west and, you know, I, I, we're a North American team, even though we have global competitions, but if the more eastward you go, the more wild west it becomes in that infrastructure, because the problems we face here is that, you know, North America generally is trying to articulate the value of the product versus when I travel to China with the team, we can leave the airport, we see our faces on a bus for some reason, and it's very demonstrated. People love esports, but the infrastructure and the money behind it isn't as much, and so those often competing universes under one big br- bucket of esports yields very different results on the back end infrastructure and in supporting businesses.
0: Wait, pull that apart. What, what do you mean? So in China, you're more famous, mm-hmm. but there's less infrastructure and there's less revenue, it sounds like. Yes. Whereas here, there's less sort of cultural awareness and fame. But
1: much more revenue. Much more- it's America, yep. so
0: there's more lawyers. <laughs> Correct. I was a lawyer. I can say that. There's more lawyers and mm-hmm. agents and potentially more revenue. Yes. When you say that leads to different back-end decisions, pull that apart. What kind of decisions get made differently?
1: It's fascinating, right? So we, we are in some franchise leagues that we have regulations we follow and some leagues where there's no regulations. So we can pull players from across the world. But we're a U.S. company, so they have to be of the legal working age. They have to have certain hours and minimum wage requirements versus we sometimes compete against Chinese teams – are you 12 or are you 16? I have no idea. And, oh, why is your agent also look 12? And <laughs> who's paying you guys? it's It can be a bit, it's very frothy in terms of how well-structured some teams are in terms of back-end legitimacy from a business point of view. However, what is what is an interesting equalizer is that competitively, right, if we're in a round-robin open qualifier tournament it takes place in Singapore and it's us backed by institutional investors and sports investors versus a group of friends from the Philippines who they've done nothing but played this game for 10 years. It's very, it's very, um, it's hard sometimes for us to give a value proposition of why I go through all the rigmarole of structure and this when some of the athletes can still see, well, if I just live in the EU or if I live in APAC and I can, I don't need to pay taxes. I can just play. Like <laughs> it's the education component of why be an infrastructure business and be legitimately supported in for very short-term gains-focused youth, which tends to be our athletes, is harder for us to navigate and manage because globally regulations are so different. And EU regulations for tournaments versus APAC regulations versus China versus North America, they're all different. And it requires us to be very quick-footed and have a lot of support to make sure we can navigate those scenes appropriately.
0: I guess one question I have is... is- most startups, young businesses, and I, I recognize that Evil Geniuses is, is twenty-some years old, but it's still it's startup. in startup mode. And you're, run, you're running it like a startup. They don't run towards asymmetric global competition, mm. right? Like that's not a natural instinct for a startup. Mm. And then, in particular, with sports, sports are traditionally very local. Esports does not seem like there's a New York City team or a a, a Kansas City team or whatever, right? Like it's a it's inherently this delocation location What's the word I'm looking for?
1: It's not geo-affiliated at all.
0: See, this is why you're in charge. <laughs> so it, it's it's not geo-affiliated to a place, and then you end up chasing after a team of, you know, uh, kids who live in a house in the Philippines. Why not try to make it geo-affiliated? Is, there, is, there just, is that just a bad business idea?
1: I, I get this question a lot, especially from traditional sports people. Why would I be interested in going deep in a small local market when I already can touch a global audience authentically and market against them authentically with lower level of effort because we're digital. You know, if you look at the e E E we teased as it's the first world problem. We just started setting up our um, Asia and Russia based social media and infrastructure. And we grow like 8% month over month organically. It's massive. The fandom globally is massive and those, maybe not as valuable as a consumer from a marketing point of view, as a North American viewer or an EU viewer, but the volume of people is something to really contend with. And it, we're a digital product. We are accessible by everyone. There's no reason, like we, of course, EG, Seattle, the Pacific Northwest Esports team, which is great, we have fans here, we can do local activations, but I think COVID showed this perfectly. We, we can still connect with our community, even when local things are disrupted, because our community is global, and that's a larger breath. We hit just our main social channels hit over seventy million impressions a month, not through target. That's all organic impressions growed over time. Versus, I don't bear with me. I'm not a geography expert. Like I don't know how many people are in Ohio. If I were to start an Ohio esports team,
0: wow! Hard shot at Ohio <laughs> from Nicole Point Jameson. <laughs>
1: But what is interesting about the geo-affiliation market that we are exploring is, you know, if you look at the average viewer of ESPN is what, 54? And why do people become fans of sports teams that you traditionally see on traditional sports broadcasts? It's usually family, or I was born in a location, or I live in a location, so I'm a fan of the location team. But because we are an entertainment product, we can create value proposition through our brand of why do you become a fan of a brand, kind of like clothing or a music artist, which can have broader reach, so we can we can do both. We can still geo affiliate, but we can go broader. But in terms of the volume of the pie that I want to cut a slice out of, geo affiliation is always something we look at, but it's not going to be my priority because I have many more fans across the globe than just I could tap into only in Seattle. Um, but we can do both authentically and well.
0: When you talk about those global audiences, and you talk about impressions, again, there are other teams that are have just leaned. Fully into Twitch, I've mm-hmm. leaned fully into YouTube. Some of them leaned into Mixer, that didn't t- turn out so great. Whoops! Uh, <laughs> I've checked out your Twitch channel. I've looked at your YouTube. Like those aren't spaces you're playing in very aggressively. Is that a, a, a an avenue of expansion for you?
1: Definitely something we're looking at. We actually, huh, thanks for calling me out. We just hired some heavy hitters from both gaming and entertainment to help boost our digital, digital marketing, and digital social. We are pretty good at the native content creation, more slice of life, but the more of the phase clan entertainment, that's where we're expanding. We focus a little differently. EG historically, before I came in, was known as only really an athletic C-sports team. So we're a little bit behind on the expansion to entertainment and content product, but we've moved into spaces where we're either a first mover or the only mover, really also touching around, I mentioned the education And bridging what is esports for different audiences, as well as DE and I spaces, making sure esports is accessible. We were one of the first esports teams to actually have a podcast. We were one of the first esports teams to be in, have multilingual um, content creation. So we've taken bite-sized steps in directions we knew we could own um, before doing kind of the table stakes of what everyone else is is doing.
0: Do you think that cuts against... That you're going to be a great professional athlete at your game when, okay, we also need you to monetize your life. Like, we need you to live in this house and party all the time. And that's
1: exactly why we've done it very carefully. Because, it, you know, on the spectrum, if you ask me, the end of the day, my athletes are athletes. You know, and it's great. We have to support them. We have to build a brand. We have to keep lights on the business. But if they suck at the game, th- that's not interesting to me at all. And so there is a balance, right? You can't be all things to all people. And so... That manifests into us signing pure content creators, that manifests in us carving out, okay, you get two production days a month, and then, oh, if you miss that window, partner, you can't use this player right now. Um, We have to manage their balance because unlike just content creators or other eSports teams that fully focus on the entertainment side, we blend both.
0: We're gonna take another quick break, and when we come back, I wanna talk about the culture of gaming and how to change it from the top down. All right, we're back. I want to talk about Evil Genius's diversity and inclusion efforts. Gaming, historically, has not really been a very inclusive space. Let's talk about your diversity and inclusion efforts here. It seems like you're pushing hard in the entire space to make that a mission of your company. It seems like you have some metrics that say this is actually going to help us win more, but it is just a challenging space. You are a woman and a person of color in gaming I've been around. I I know that sucks. (laughs) How do you manage that? Like, how do you manage the sort of oncoming negativity that comes with being in that space and standing up for, especially in gaming? Like, it's hard everywhere, but this is a culture that has been fairly resistant to it. Part of it's personal.
1: When I came into the space, I was nervous. I was a triple first in terms of esports team CEOs, uh, race, gender, and age. And I was very nervous of what reception would be like. And part of me was not surprised by reception, but part of me was also very lifted by the amount of people that came out of the woodwork per se. We're like, we've been here. It's amazing to see a a voice or someone that looks or can speak for us, like us. And that story became more and more frequent. There are so many people that don't fit the perceived narrative of who a gamer is in the gaming community. And so part of it is personal. Like, I'm so excited to have a platform to give a megaphone to people whose voices felt like they weren't heard before even though they are legitimate parties and creators and innovators in this space but also like professionally gaming is ubiquitous and should be ubiquitous and the fact that no other organization has figured it out of how to actually navigate that space well is silly because for me again I go back to you pick the content creator you pick the pure athlete I always want the best athlete But the data shows the best athletes aren't just the ones you know and have conversations with because they are faces in the space. If you open doors for the best of the best, they tend to come. And so we've really pushed for organic, non-quota, non-targeted hiring through, here's what EG is. We offer maternity paternity leave. We offer college tuition stipends when you leave our rosters. We offer a lot of things that help bring other people and break down barriers that might have existed into the fold. And that has resulted in a really interesting, just in two years, right? We are a tech and gaming company that has 52% female leadership and management positions. We haven't targeted any women hiring. We are 30% people of color, which is also very high for gaming. Even our athletes, if you take diversity as more, which we do, than just race, ethnicity, or religion we have parents that can actually compete on our roster. We have people that came from low-income third-part or third world countries that have been able to come here and bring different types of social mobility to their life through esports. And we like to celebrate that because at the end of the day, like these are the best athletes. So whatever we can do to get the best best athletes in our house works for me as a business. And people rally behind those storylines because again, why do you follow a brand? that is not geo affiliated, you know, it's the storylines, and it's the people. And when you have people with compelling stories that speak to you as a consumer, like we are EG is the voice of the people in gaming, and no other team has taken that stance before. And it was a very authentic and easy point for me to come in. And, you know, when I started at EG was eight people, we just hit 150 people that fall under that vision as well and like to support that space. So it's been good for us.
0: I'm looking forward to the the soft focus human interest package before you're like they do <laughs> at the Olympics. Uh, let me ask you, this. so eight to 150, college tuition stipends, better healthcare, right? Those are all costs, yep. right? Like you're talking about a massive increase in costs. Mm-hmm. So now I'm going to play the role of the private equity investor and say, what, how are you growing revenues to justify that massive increase in costs?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, investor, thank you for supporting me in this
0: endeavor. <laughs> this is good. It's like being in a meeting with you. Right.
1: Second of all, but that's what met, these are the third. These are the peripheral business arms we then use to support. So, for example, pushing into all these initiatives with colleges and bringing in the next leaders of esports, we partnered with we partnering with universities to build out their esports programming, curriculum, facilities, whatever it is. That consultation pipeline often rivals, depending on the season or the quarter. Rivals are direct sponsorships for our teams. Those are big bucks. Those are really ed tech bucks. I love ed tech bucks. Or <laughs> even our community partner. If you view it as okay, a lot of esports costs go to direct marketing, but we can do good in the world, bring up brand awareness, and get customer conversion or fan conversion through community partnerships and goodwill. So we're really strategic around who we even partner with in terms of community partnerships. Um, and so we've been able to look at areas that. We authentically care about and find ways that are not predatory or actually support the core of our business by bringing in revenue, but also boosting our mission. So that goes back into that matrix of deep decision-making and why and what we do. Because esports is a bit of a green pasture. We can kind of do whatever and call it esports if it touches gaming somehow today. But we've taken a very education and values-focused approach to who do we work with, what do we partner with, and why. And that also resonates with partners. You know, when brands stopped spending on direct marketing and advertising during COVID, their charity, goodwill, and community budgets didn't stop. So we were able to activate and support brands bringing their awareness to different spaces through um, what we offer in activations. And by being nimble in those areas, we are able to show positive traction across fandom development, revenue development, and even competitive results, again, without deprecating our core product.
0: One of the challenges entertainment companies in particular face when they focus on diversity and sports leagues too, and sports, traditional sports leagues are all over the map on this when they, when they talk about diversity inclusion is, well, you're trying to get everyone, you're trying to please everyone by the nature of your product. And so if they're, if you irritate half of the country because you're continue to talk about diversity inclusion, you did a podcast episode on Black Lives Matter. The NFL is not doing that, mm-hmm. right? Like, They are trying to pitch a huge tent to get money from everybody. How do you balance that, especially as you're growing?
1: It's a tough balance. And I think it is the more internal culture deflating conversations of like, how do we pick what conversations we enter what conversations we don't? And not to sound like overly annoyingly corporate, but it starts from our mission, vision, and values. And quite literally, again, going back to my annoying data decision making, right? Does it fit into the matrix of this is what we set out to do? Does this aid? Is it neutral or is it negative to these causes and building a playbook of how even my team members at EG can operate understanding, okay, what lanes do we play and what lanes do we not? Do we have a voice and do we have a say in this conversation or does it help us or is it to make us look good? Because we also, we don't like to do things just for the optics of it. That's a waste of energy for me. And as well as people can see through that shallowness. So how do we show through action and how we back it up and support the things that we do in the conversation we want to enter into that tends to be our filter. But it's also great because we have a really good litmus test of what do our players care about? Our players pick half of our charitable donations that we do every year, right? It's it's us that decides where we support. It's an alignment to our league partners, like what are they trying to achieve and where are goals that we can co-help together, as well as what sticks to my shareholders' values, my investors' values, and our corporate strategy. And that's so that means we do elect to not participate in things, but it also means we are selective and very purposeful and thoughtful around what we do choose to participate in.
0: What's something you chose not to participate in?
1: There were many race-related incidents in America over the past year that I think everyone is aware of in terms of um, legal justice and recourse for race-related incidents. And it's hard because I have a lot of people at EG who intrinsically, deeply, deeply care and they're like, well, we have a platform, let's say something, let's push. That's, that's a conversation that we can support privately as individuals. But for, as a corporate entity, what can we do that is more than just showing social media support? We didn't see a clear pathway there of where could more than just a dollar donation or a tweet really push the needle. And so that's something we decide to handle differently. Than a lot of like public support that you saw, other maybe social media um, accounts of other sports teams do. It's also tough, right? Because we're global. There are a lot of incidents of, okay, well, if we speak on this, do we also talk about similar happenings in the Middle East, in China, in Northern Africa? And so making sure we're thoughtful around, okay, if we do this, what are the ripple effects and what's the full network of what is the message we're trying to say and how do we be consistent? globally rather than just locally is important. And so that means some conversations because we're not ready to have them or we're not ready to put, again, action behind the words we, we stay away from or we we think longer term, how do we support and how do we create long term positive progress?
0: Well, let me push you on, the, on the, the China point. This is something we hear from every entertainment company, again, to make the to comparison to traditional sports leagues. The NBA keeps crashing into this wall. They can't seem to help themselves. You're doing a lot of business in China. Your players are on the sides of buses, I'm told. That's a very different legal regime. It's a very different human rights regime. How comfortable are you with how much of your business requires China?
1: It can be hard personally knowing, well, Alpha in the room is, there are many spaces in business globally that we participate in that me as an individual might not usually be able to participate in by my race or my gender, especially. And that is hard to navigate. And so the most we can do, again, by showing that being a values-forward sports team, sticking to our guns around our mission and showcasing competitive excellence can hopefully push in authentic ways rather than force people to confront something they don't want to confront to bring positive change. Like, we try to do the most that we can do realistically, and we're very big realists around what has impact and what doesn't versus what fights do we take that's stop our business from continuing, we have to be thoughtful. It would be unrealistic for us to cut out as a gaming company, China, for example, as a country, because half of developers in the world are owned partially by Chinese country, a, a Chinese company. The, our fans are there. And so again, trying to be thoughtful of how we navigate, what we participate in and why is important. Um, And I cannot claim, like, I will not even pretend we do it perfectly, we do it excellently, but we definitely try every day to be thoughtful around the why of what we do to bring people along with us on our mission not isolate fans or communities.
0: There's the positive side of your mission, what you support, what you say, what you donate to. There's also a, a more negative construct, right? Last year, you removed two players from the roster for their conduct. Walk me through that. What kind of decision was that for you?
1: Removing players off contract cycle is something we take super seriously, um, both from like a legal and financial liability, but also it's very disruptive to it to the teams, to a community, and so we we take any claims of someone breaking our employment conduct or our harassment policies very very seriously. And we believe that people can make mistakes and recover from them, but there are certain mistakes or repeated actions that I cannot, in good faith, turn a blind eye on because it also creates an internal unsafe environment. I'm trying to protect the masses of my my people at EG. And so we did have to remove some players earlier, uh, later last year, around similar claims. It's a process, right? We have to, we want to keep it objective, so we bring in third-party investigators to do diligence the situation. We find documented Uh, documented incidences of either repeated behavior or something that breaks the code of conduct very explicitly. And then we have to make a decision based on that. And so what pains me about the situation is some of the behavior had been prior to my time and I hadn't been aware of it. And it had only been brought to light through social media, in which case we quickly, quickly acted. But it was a big call to action that I had to be better and my team, we could do better in Proactive management. So, what had not just resulted from that in the removal was we do social media audits and deeper background checks with all of our hires, not just staff, but also players. We also do quarterly harassment and um, good communication skills training through a third party vendor. And we really bring in infrastructure and programs. We call it How to Live Evil, uh, as evil geniuses, (laughs) around like both players, how do you think of your brand on social media? How should you do code of conduct? What are resources you have to help if you ever feel uncertain, as well as even staff and management crisis and de-escalation training? So we took this super seriously. It, again, is a cost investment that I am lucky that I have investors to financially support because I do believe that is needed for us to continue to do well in the long term, even if there's a short-term financial implication. But if I create an unsafe work environment for myself or others, it's it defeats the whole purpose of trying to grow and expand and bring a positive outlook to the gaming industry. So don't take those things lightly at all, but we take them really seriously. And it was a good wake-up call and call to action of how can we always continue to optimize and do better?
0: I've asked you a lot about places you're increasing costs. I want to end with where you're increasing revenue. What are your revenue lines right now and where are they growing?
1: Yes, we have a really great and very fast growing direct sponsorship line. My sales team is amazing. I was able to somehow convince a bunch of people who had never worked in esports and did sales, both sell and buy side and traditional sports and consumer product goods to come join this clunky esports team and sell it. And they've done fantastically. And that's our biggest revenue stream. But we also have, as I mentioned, our collegiate consulting and our education consulting and curriculum development, which has been newer for us for about seven months into that pipeline externally facing. And it's been surprisingly fast growing. We also, our newest product, and we actually roll out with our last public component at the end of this quarter of our tech and data analytics, because we built, we used tools to make decisions internally. We realized we could white label those tools and sell them direct. And then we also realized we could white label even more and sell to larger partners, including smaller leagues, other teams, fantasy and gambling sites. And that has been an excellent plug and play for us that we we didn't realize that would be as lucrative a as an entire business line as it has been. And so we're going deeper into that area. And then, of course, the regular marketing, advertising, ad sales. But that's tiny. Merchandise, everyone always talks about, oh, fashion and apparel. That's slim margins there. We kind of just keep that for the fan excitement, manage costs.
0: Everyone thinks Supreme is the business. No. It's not the business. Yeah.
1: <laughs> People always give me a lot of shit for that, too. It's so like, your merch sucks. I'm like, I'm sorry. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: great. Uh, which one of those uh, is growing the fastest? Hmm.
1: You know, from a total volume point of view, it's probably direct sponsorships. But I'm very curious. Our, the collegiate is interesting because education budgets or university budgets, they fall at a different fiscal year. It tends to be May to June and May to June versus Jan to Jan. And COVID has reshuffled quite a bit of traditional sports or athletics or club or intramural budgets into things like esports programming. And so very recently, our pipeline in terms of potential has quadrupled just in the past two months this year. Hasn't signed much yet from this newfound growth, but I think end of this year, we'll have a really good sense of our collegiate education proposals might be the, the ticket to better support. And then, of course, we have our evergreen league revenue share from our league partners.
0: Last question. What's next for Evil Geniuses? What should people be looking for?
1: Ah, I think we are going to continue to, well, lift trophies, obviously. It's an exciting year for us as live events. We're hoping will come back by the end of this year and we'll have some very nice big activations coupling our tournaments. But also, I think we're trying to get smarter around how do we continue to build out data driven decision making around eSports athletics and what avenues that opens up, not just for us internally in terms of managing costs and scouting talent in the eSports space, but how do we support our leagues and potentially sell to other teams that infrastructure as well. So that agency roster scouting play, I think, is an untapped area we might want to tap into.
0: Tremendous. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for joining us on Decoder today.
1: Thank you for having me. It was great.
0: thank you again to Nicola Point Jamison for taking the time to talk today and thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at the or hit me up directly. I'm at reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The decoder is a production of the verge and part of the Vox media podcast network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D Simone, Sophie Erickson, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster cylinder. We'll see you next time.